the, the method behind the madness of how we choose what um, we choose and how. And so we're jumping into 1 Corinthians, and last week was the first sermon. This is the second sermon. Um, if you're familiar at all with the first book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul is pretty angry. Um, a lot has gone wrong at the church of Corinth. And Paul has heard both, as you'll see, from Chloe's people. It seems like he's had some people come to him and give him an oral report of what's going on in the church of Corinth. About halfway through, he'll say he also received a letter from some folks in Corinth. And so Paul has heard both from people who've come to visit him and from written correspondence about what's going on in Corinth. And so what he's doing in the book of Corinthians is really he's moving issue by issue through the first letter of, um, to the Corinthians, tackling each issue, showing how it's sin and how it's wrong, um, the ways that it undermines Christian living and Christian community, and then how the gospel of Jesus is the solution to that particular problem. But before he gets into angry Paul and starts laboring against all these things that are wrong and, um, in Corinth, he, he has these moments of thanksgiving where he gives thanks to God for what he's doing at the church of Corinth. That even though a lot is really wrong in Corinth, that nevertheless, as we saw last week, God had planted that church, God had saved them by grace, God had equipped them with spiritual gifts, God had made them the promise that one day he would return again, and all of them whose faith was in Christ would be wrapped up into the new heavens and the place that God was preparing for them. And so even though things were amiss and were going wrong, the Lord God was at work in them. And that's something that we're grasping hold of as we work our way through, is this is what God's doing in our midst, and these are very real issues we have to address, and that's both individually and corporately. And so in your life as a Christian, God has done amazing things in your life and has grown you in amazing ways, and you have sinned. Not just every once in a while you do something that's really bad. You have the flesh working within you. You have habits of sin, sins that you do over and over again, sin blind spots, sins that you're sinning that you don't even know about. And God is pressing into those areas, and he is calling you to repent of those areas, not because he's a mean, nasty God, but because he loves you, and he wants health, and he wants life for you. And so he's calling you to growth in the same way that he does that for congregations as a whole. And so our congregation has sin in it. Our congregation has blind spots of sin and always will until the day that Jesus comes for us and the church as a whole is made, as Jesus said, holy and blameless before him as a bride without spot or blemish. We're waiting for that day, but until that day, there is no perfect church. And so if you're considering membership here, we've got our issues, we've got our stuff, and every church does. And so that's what we're going into Corinth in this series, to take a look individually and corporately, where do we need to grow? What does it look like to root ourselves in the finished work of Jesus, but still be able to truthfully and really stare down sin, repent of it, and grow over the course of our lives? And so this week we're handling particularly divisions in the church, and Paul's starting into some of the issues that are going on in Corinth, and it was a divided congregation. Now, when I say things and when the Bible says things, you aren't hearing them as if you were sitting in the congregation at Corinth and Paul was writing the letter to them. You're sitting as people in Culpeper in early 2017 with the grids that you come with. And so sometimes when we use certain words... They, don't, they aren't received the same way that Corinth would have. You receive them through your American and evangelical grid. And so it's important for us to note as we go into this, com this conversation about division and disunity amongst Christianity in a particular congregation, Paul is not propagating the American gospel of niceness. The American gospel of niceness is division's bad, disagreements bad, we should all be able to believe whatever we want, do whatever we want, and be nice to each other in all circumstances. Unless you don't believe in that gospel, and then you're the worst kind of villain ever. That's the American gospel of niceness. Everyone can believe whatever they want, everyone can do whatever they want, and everyone has to affirm one another and whatever they believe and whatever they do 
And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell and smells like smoke, and not what Paul is advocating in any part, much less in this book. Paul's expectation for Christian community is that it's a place where admonition, rebuke, and exhortation are natural, normal parts of what we do with one another. Even now, when you hear those things, you're like, I didn't know Joe was that kind of person. If someone said, I, I, I need to admonish you, like you think that's like DEFCON 5. If, if you were to think right now, after the service, one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is going to exhort you or rebuke you, you would think, oh, I'm not sure I could ever come back to that church again if, if that happens. Where the way Paul uses it, just do a Bible study. Just take a concordance and look up the words rebuke, admonition, exhortation. Paul sees that as a normal part of loving one another. Of saying, brother, sister, I, I think maybe that's sin. Repent and love God. And then you can repent and love God and move on. Because there is truth and there is lie and there is sin and there is repentance. And if we believe lies and walk in sin, it's going to go really bad for us. And so a very normal part of Christian community is, hey, I, I think you're walking away from God, not towards him. You know, the Lord invites you to stand in the identity that Jesus purchased you and say no to those things and walk in life. That's supposed to be normal. I know that's not normal for us. I know intent, instead we're affected by the the gospel of American niceness, but that isn't where Paul's going. And so Paul right now is saying division's bad, disunity's bad, but he's also about to spend 15-some chapters calling out all of the things that are there, calling out some people by name. Some people in the Corinthian church are immortalized in Holy Scripture and errant by the Apostle Paul saying to them, stop it. Get along. And so our expectation for division and disunity is not that it means everybody has to be nice to one another. It means something else. And so that's the direction we're going in as we see this. So, so don't hear when the Bible says everybody should be unified, there should be no division, as everybody should be nice to one another and never ruffle any feathers. That is totally not what the New Testament teaches anywhere. And the New Testament fundamentally is laying out a type of community that you cannot find anywhere else in all of creation. And that you would not choose if God does not change your heart and your life in a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so important. So after this election, everybody's like, well, our, our, our nation is, is shattered and we all just need to get along and we need to somehow come together. Whatever the national idea is of what the remedy for all of that is in no way the gospel of Jesus. Because as we'll read in some of the next chapters, God so changes us that the type of unity, the type of connectedness and community that Christians experience with one another is absolutely unique and supernatural. That only Jesus through the Holy Spirit could, could provide for us and only change people would want. And you'll see that as you work your way through. And so we're not holding out for you something that is lesser. We're holding out for you something that is unique and supernatural, even in comparison to everything the world would want. If you took the world's laundry list of perfect community, it would not even compare to what the Bible offers as far as community. And right now I know for so many, your pain point is community. And so we're going to look at that as we go through our way through. Um, but I wanted to start off by saying Paul is not advocating the gospel of American niceness. He's advocating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which produces a kind of community and unity that is completely unique and supernatural and something that only Christians can experience. And so um, with that preface, um, I'll read to us God's word from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that one may say, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of our God. So let me pray for us as we jump in. Father, thank you for your word, which is whole and complete in every part. As we learn it together, we need your Holy Spirit to make it plain. We need your Holy Spirit to convict us where we need to change and grow. We need your Holy Spirit to show us Christ and convince us of your fatherly love. So Lord, would you come now and do these things? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you go in, we have to hear... Paul's admonition in verse 10 that unity in the body of Christ is a big deal. This is not a spiritual gym. This is not like a membership to Gold's where you come in and I'm your spiritual trainer and I help you accomplish all of your spiritual New Year's goals and in response you pay the gym membership in the baskets to either side. That is not what a church is. A church is not a social club where people who have an affinity for one another, who are usually the same color or um, um, economic range, come together and can talk about spiritual things. The church is not a lecture hall. This is not Joe's bully pulpit. This is not where I come and I say things with, as Paul says, eloquent wisdom. I hope that I can keep you awake for 30 to 40 minutes. But this is not the place where a person who is competent in public speaking gets to rant and rave for 45 minutes. That is not what the church is. The church is a natural and necessary consequence of the redemption that Jesus brought about in space and time at his cross and resurrection. God created humanity to function well together. He created Adam and Eve to be in perfect community with one another. And what we find is as soon as sin entered the world, community was fractured, not only with God, but with one another. So you read Adam and Eve in the garden, and it could play like any counseling appointment or marriage appointment I've ever had when I'm counseling some couple. Well, the serpent made me do it. God, this woman you gave me, I mean, the amount of blame shifting and blaming the other person in the garden is the same thing that's happened with marital couples ever since. Their marital community was broken. As I say to you often, the first experiment in parenting ended up in one kid killing the other. Parents have always needed the grace of God. So not only was it husband-wife, but it was brother-brother. And on from there, you see community shattered so much so that it gets to Babel. They start to try and pull together sinful community. And God realizes that if you pull together sinful community, then that is going to amplify sin. So God, by his grace, confuses the languages and scatters the people so that it makes it more difficult for them to amplify community-level sin. And so humanity spirals out over the course of history, and we see the great work that Jesus has done, skipping over a few thousand years, and after Jesus is raised again, what happens at Pentecost? Now, God starts to pull people back together, so that it appears that the barrier to their unity and to the gospel going forth is going to be the fact that they all speak different languages. And instead, whether it is how Peter spoke or the ears of the hearers, God makes it possible that Peter's proclamation of the gospel in Hebrew is understood by natural speakers of other languages. And after that, the church grows by the thousands. And so God at Pentecost starts to reverse Babel. Why does he start to do that? Because redemption has happened and occurred. (laughs) The natural undoing of the consequences of sin are not just personal individual, that all of a sudden you start to become a more restored, sanctified, holy person. It isn't only vertical that your relationship with God is restored and begins to grow. It is also horizontal and the ways that your relationship with others who share the same faith and the same God of redemption is restored 
to not just pre-fall standards, but redemptive standards, which is even better than the Garden of Eden. So, if we look at the work of Jesus, but can't trace out the restoration of a community that is redeemed and being redeemed, we should doubt the work of Jesus, which is, according to the Bible, undoing and restoring all things. And so a local church is a natural consequence of the redemption that Jesus has already purchased for us. And it's something that he talked about. And so he said, the way that the world will know you is by your reformed theology. He didn't say that. The way the world will know you is by your Christian bumper stickers. He didn't say that. The way the world will know you is how you post about me on Facebook. He didn't say that. The way the world will know you is the way you love one another. So he says the consequence of redemption on a community level with other Christians, that unique supernatural community and connectedness that Christians experience is going to be an attractive and strange things that people are going to ask you about. And so when the Apostle Paul looks at Corinth, hears about Corinth and says, division is not good, no bueno, like we can't do that. We need to, something's drastically gone wrong. He simply is noting that they are moving in the other direction of redemption. So if you're not seeing Christian community, unique, redeemed, and redeeming community happen amongst you, there is something about the gospel that is a mist underneath. He's about to chart that, at least here in Corinth. And so we at least have to stop at verse 10 and say Christians must be marked by a radical sin-hating, Jesus-focused, repentance-marinated love for one another. This unique thing. And it may be that in your history, in your course of church, in your, you may have just experienced 2% of what that is. It isn't a given. It isn't like a spiritual gift where everyone gets, gets it. It's something that you have to work hard on and something that a church has to work, on, work hard on. And as you see in Corinth, it isn't always going to happen. If any church should experience redemptive community, it was Corinth. I mean, God himself audibly told the Apostle Paul to plant the church in Corinth. Paul was there. He administered on the Areopagus, Mars Hill. He experienced a bunch of persecution. He was about to head on. He's in prayer with God. And God said, no, no, no. Stay. I've got people here. Plant this church. And so Paul says he stays for another 18 months planting um, the church at Corinth. They had, like, the best preacher around, Apollos, who was there. Like, all-star preacher. Like, was selling all the books and was on all the podcasts and on everything else. Like, they had Paul and Apollos both investing in this place by the sovereign, audible command of God. And they were a mess. And they had a lot of work to do in terms of community. And at least according to Paul, they were experiencing a very low percentage of the kind of redeemed community that the trajectory of redemption points towards. And so we have to hold it out as something that is possible and that we have to work at and also something that is fragile. Not that it will be completely destroyed, but that the level of community you experience individually and in a local church goes up or down. It's been protected and worked on and strengthened. And so the Apostle Paul's telling them, this is what's done it. And now we get to this next part, and we don't know as much of what's going on here in Corinth. And so um, we'll make some biblically informed guesses. And so we'll look at it and say, well, this is what we think is going on. Um, but whether or not it was going on or not, it is true that these things are bad and, and Jesus is good. And that's always where we should go when we're in Scripture. And I'll talk to you about where we go here in these divisions. And this might not be the only cause of division in a congregation. This just happens to be the division that Corinth was experiencing. And so Paul will go on about this report in verses 11 and 12. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The church there at Corinth because they did not have a firm 
focus on Jesus and his gospel were tempted towards and gave into centering themselves around Christian leaders and the particular teaching of particular Christian leaders. And so these factions happened within the church that the Christian leaders themselves would not approve of. They'd be in Paul and Apollos and um, Peter, Cephas, and Jesus, of course, all of them would say, don't do that. Don't do that at all. That, that's not what I came. I came to you would follow Jesus, not me. But what had happened there in the midst of them is they had, they had decided, I'm, I'm going to focus on that guy and what that guy's about. And so if we were to look at some of the things that were going on, we can see four categories around what this could happen. And by the way, this has never been a bigger temptation for Christians um, just because of podcasting and book publishing and the internet. Like, for you to center yourself around a particular good pastor, a reputable pastor, has never been more of a temptation. So, you know, I'm a John MacArthur guy. I'm a Matt Chandler guy. I'm a Mark Dever guy. You know, it's, we could go on and on around the number of Christian celebrities. Now, those men have very fruitful ministries and preach a very true and clear gospel and may be of great benefit to you if you listen to their sermons or read their materials. But if you start to center yourself around them and their particular personality and who they are, you can get very, very bent in shape and very, very wrong. I'm a particular person with particular preferences, a particular experience. I preach the word of God that is true no matter who's preaching it, but you cannot center yourself around Joe and all that Joe says and how Joe says it. We are about the word of God and about Jesus Christ, and so we have to guard ourselves against this. And so let's look at these four little factions. The first faction was a group of people who said, I follow Paul. This is the the founder mentality, the conservative mentality, that there are usually good Christians who fall into the category of builders. They built something, they set things in place, and when things start to get shaky, people will say, well, we need to go back to how he planted it and how he founded it, and we want it to be like it was in the early days. That is a very real temptation for a faction to join around in a church. The second faction is around Apollos, and Apollos was a very gifted preacher. In fact, he was a better gifted preacher than he was a theologian. It says the husband and wife couple, Priscilla and Aquila, um, who were missionary partners with the Apostle Paul, they also made tents and met Paul that way. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila came across Apollos, heard his preaching, and he was a well-renowned preacher, but heard some things that weren't quite right about his theology. And so they took him aside as a married couple and said, you are such a talented preacher but we need to work on some of this theology. Let us mentor and apprentice you theologically. And Apollos did. It seems like he grew and thrived as a preacher there in Corinth. And so there is always this natural bent towards factions forming around gifted preachers. I mean, truly gifted by the Holy Spirit preachers. There are people who say, oh, just such a good preacher. I'm just all about that good preacher, whoever that good preacher could be. The third group is centered around a regional celebrity, Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter. Um, And we have no evidence that Peter ever went to Corinth. He centered in and around Jerusalem in um, in his ministry. But of course, they'd heard about Peter. I mean, who hasn't heard about Peter? Peter, you know, one of the great apostles and disciple of Jesus and fell and was restored and Peter, Peter, Peter. And so he was kind of a regional celebrity, just this famous person who never visited the local church, but was someone that many of the people there are like, listen, uh, I mean, I know Paul, I know Apollos, but we are Peter people. We really like what Peter has to do. He has this very particular kind of Jewish slant on things, and we really like that. We're about who he is. And this fourth group, this is where it's debatable, um, is we follow Christ. Now, of course, that sounds really good. We should all follow Christ. That, that, That sounds like the one good group out of them. But the way that Paul lists it in the list in Scripture is I think what was happening was there is that they were a reactionary group to the other three saying, we're not those people, we're really Jesus people. Not true followers of Jesus, but kind of like a pietistic, reformed Christ group. That They had the name of Christ, 
but they were not following particularly the whole teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as a healthy Christian. And sometimes different groups or factions can use the name Jesus, but just because they use the name Jesus doesn't mean that everything they teach is true or right. So to take something that's outside of the pale of Christianity, if you look at Christian science, it's very easy to see that it's neither. It's neither Christian nor science. It's just self-helpism. But because they've taken the words Christian and science, everybody's like, well, I'm for Christianity and I'm for science. That sounds like the kind of religion for me. I'm obviously a very intellectual, studious Christian when you're actually neither. And so when we look at groups, there's also this this, this tendency towards, if not centered on a person, a response movement with a catchy name. And it's just as easy to create division and factions within a local congregation that way. Again, this might not be what brings disunity or division in every congregation, but it was what was bringing disunity and division there. And it is just as, if not stronger, a temptation for us today. And one of the benefits of a local church is that you get a mediocre, normal congregation with a mediocre, mediocre, normal pastor, and all of you have a chance in the middle of your weaknesses to look to the Lord Jesus. And remember that it is all about Christ. With all the ways we're gifted and not, with all the ways we're strong and not, for all the ways we sin and repent and grow, we are not the end all be all. It's one of the difficulties of living in our generation where we have TV shows like American Idol, and there are all these competitions. You know, that is the great, I know a lot, I know what pitchy is. I know what it is for someone to sing under or over a note. The only reason I know that is I've watched so many singing competitions on TV. I never would have known that before. I would have been very blissfully content and not knowing what singing under or singing over is because I'm not a trained um, singer. And so now sometimes I hear things, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a little bit off. In the same way is that if you can look at all of the different podcasts by all of the different preachers, there are hundreds of better sermons, structurally speaking, than the one you're listening to right now. No offense to the music team, but there are hundreds of better musicians than the music team who has, we have here. But being here in a local church, it is not about our excellence or our performance or the level of our gifting in comparison to others, as if somehow we're advocating that everybody should listen to my podcast and we should just take the worship team's music album and put it out and hope it hits top 10 on iTunes. No, we're a local church about Jesus. And all of us bring our strengths together. And we bring our strengths together to honor the Lord Jesus. And it, it doesn't matter how it is on the global scale or how we do in a national competition because that's not what the church is about. The unity we have is around Jesus and Jesus alone. And so it's just as easy to create the kind of factions, divisions that you see here in Corinth today. And we have to be on the guard against that. Anyway, um, we get into the next, the absurdity of the division in church. And Paul does this. I love this about Paul. Um, there is a biblically sanctified way to mock people and be sarcastic. I'll say biblically sanctified because mocking and sarcasm, those are typically things that you should probably stay away from. But there are times when Paul, and actually Jesus, used mocking and, sacri- um, used mocking and sarcasm to point out the absurdity of what was going on in a congregation. And he does that here. He doesn't say, well, listen, you need to understand the biblical theological tra- trajectory of redemption and how horizontal relationships are restored through the work of Jesus and how you're undermining the gospel. That's what I tried to do in the beginning. He says, what's going on with you? Was Jesus dismembered for you? Did we have the resurrection and his body was made whole after the brutality of what the Romans did to him? And then after that, someone butchered him? tore off one of his arms, cut off his leg, severed an ear? Was Jesus dismembered? If if Jesus' body after the resurrection is whole, and if you as the church are the picture of the body of Christ, then how can you tolerate division? Tolerating division is tolerating the dismemberment of Jesus. He goes and said, what? Was Paul crucified for you? 
All of a sudden, has Paul become your Messiah? Has Paul outshined Jesus and what Jesus has done as the pinnacle of human history and the one in whom all of the promises have come true? Is the atonement undone because you now have been crucified by Paul and thought he's earned redemption for you? What about the the baptism? Have, Have you been baptized into individual people's names? That holy sacrament of the church, the mark of coming into the church? When you came into membership in the local church, were you baptized into a Christian celebrity's name? Or were you baptized into the name of the Father, name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit? And I love Paul at this point. It's almost like he's ranting and raving. He's kind of forgetting some things. He's like, I didn't baptize anybody. He's like, oh yeah, uh, it's Crispus and Gaius. I, I did baptize those guys. Um, if you go back in Acts, you can read how Crispus had the house next to the synagogue. And when Paul was kicked out of the synagogue, um, Crispus let him um, hold up in his house. And so it turns out, in the course of that, Paul baptized him. And he goes on ranting again. He's like, oh yeah, then there was the household of Stephanus. I think I baptized them too. But he goes on and says, but anyway, regardless of all of that, Christ didn't call me to baptize. And so he has not met the division there in their congregation with anything but mockery and sarcasm, pointing out the absurdity of what they're doing. Are you nuts? Do you see what you're saying by your divisions? Do you see the lies you're propagating about Jesus, his, his resurrection into his whole body, that he was the only one who could be crucified for sin, and about the way that people come to church through placing their faith in the name of Jesus alone, not Paulus or Crispus or Gaius or Peter or anybody else. So he, he meets it with absurdity, and then he comes down and he gives the test about what they're going through. The test of true Christian unity is conformity to the plain preaching of the gospel. The plain preaching of the gospel. And he goes through and talks about that. Now, the plain preaching of the gospel thing, that test, we should look at a few tests that actually aren't true before we look at the way that Paul describes it. The plain preaching of the gospel is not a love for nice public speaking. There are a lot of people who are nice public speakers who say a lot of nice, good-sounding things. This is the Joel Osteen range. So everything that's under him and what he does, that is nice public speaking. Every once in a while, Mike mentioned the gospel, but is detrimental to your faith. One of the worst insults I ever got was that someone said, I was was at a funeral, um, and you can't say anything like this at a funeral, um, but someone came up to me and said, you just reminded me of my favorite preacher. And I'm talking to her and said, oh, you know who? And she said, you know, Joel Osteen. I was like, Thank you so much. Sorry for your loss. Move on um, with where we are. And so our world, and that's that's not mean of me to say, I hope that Joel Osteen all of a sudden meets the Lord Jesus and preaches a more clear gospel than he's preaching now, which is not the gospel at all. It is self-helpism, just like his dad taught. And people buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. The plain preaching the gospel is not nice public speaking. The second thing that it's not, the plain preaching the gospel is not the absence of conflict. For as long as we are sinners, continue to sin, there will be conflict, the need to repent and offer forgiveness and grow. So, when all of us get our acts together, and become perfect, we should expect there to no longer be the need for conflict in our congregation. So if you are a perfect person and you are frustrated by conflict in our congregation, then you should go search for a perfect church somewhere and good luck to you. If it exists and I were to join it, I would mess it up because I am not a perfect person. And I sin and need to repent and need to grow in grace. And I think we're all here because we're in that same boat. I'm hoping you all would nod to that, and that's where we are. And so unity is not the absence of conflict. Conflict testifies that we still sin, we still need the gospel, and that our relationships should be marked 
by both love and growth and exhortation and the giving and receiving of forgiveness. All of our relationships, whether it's a marriage or um, kids or um, a local church. And so unity, of course, is, is not just a place where there's absence of conflict. I could really fuss at all of you if you decided to try and have conflict. I could really lock down and try to tell you that only nice Christian people who have their acts together belong here in this church, and we could really manage sin here somewhat effectively, um, as, as some church have advanced. And then somebody sins big, and they're just out, and they, they leave. But we all just don't talk about our sin until it becomes just so painfully apparent that someone has sin, and then they leave. That, that's, not, that's not unity. That's pretending and certainly not the gospel, that's a social club. So that is not unity or a lack of division. Um, third, a lack of division is not social concern. So it isn't like, a, oh, we just all need to be united around the mission of God and go serve the hungry and the poor. I hope you serve the hungry and poor. I hope you go invest in the pregnancy center like I've already encouraged you to. I hope you um, talk to Lindy DeMeo. I hope you love on high school students. I hope you minister to your neighbors. But there is this sense that if we all focus outwardly on a social concern, that we can just not look at anything that's going on amongst us. And so, well, yeah, so-and-so is mad at whoever, and they aren't repenting or forgiving, and you know, so-and-so has this sin, and we have this sin, and there's stuff going on. But hey, we're serving at the soup kitchen this week, and so we're going to go do that together. It is a way through social concern of not actually living in legitimate Christian community and addressing sin and repentance and growth and blind spots and truth and all of those things. And so social concern can mask those things as well. It's also not commitment to a specific liturgy or tradition. One of the reasons that we don't do smells and bells is because I don't want to distract you from the true gospel. We could do candles and we could do pipes and drapes and we could do low lights and we could do the, you know, besides the fact I think none of those things are biblical and should be left out and distract from Jesus, you can get so caught up in the historical liturgy that you assume because you've given yourself to a historical liturgy that you have inoculated yourself against division. And so there are a lot of young Protestants going towards Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox not because they believe in the errant theology of those two groups, but because they have liturgy. And because their unity is around a liturgy and not about the real relationship of culting oneness with Jesus and living with other sinners in relationships of forgiving and walking in truth and learning truth and those kind of things. And so you should be aware, if not you, your children are going to be tempted towards high liturgical churches, not because they believe that liturgy is biblical and good, but because it seems to produce a kind of division when really it's just a distraction. Lastly, unity for unity's sake is not true unity. Unity can be an idol. People can worship unity and say, no, things have to be okay. We can't have disagreements because we are all about unity. And if you have a disagreement or if you sin, that is a violation of my God of unity and I'm coming after you as being against unity. Unity, for unity's sake, is not unity and you actually lose it. And so what we see, and this is important, if you ignore sin in the name of Jesus and for the purpose of unity, you end up dishonoring the name of Jesus and creating division. If you ignore sin in the name of Jesus and for the purpose of unity, you will actually end up dishonoring Jesus and destroying the unity that you long for. But if you proclaim the gospel of the crucified Christ, it will empower you to repent of sin and participate in and grow in the kind of unity that Jesus provides for his church. And that's what Paul is doing here. They were all about unity, and they were fractured. They were all about spiritual gifts, and their spiritual gifts were creating pride and grossness. They were all about the sacrament, and their sacrament, the rich folk were getting drunk, and the poor people weren't eating at all. They were all about strong theology. They didn't have a doctrine of the resurrection right. They were after right things, but not the ultimate thing of the Lord Jesus. And so all of their right things led to a mess of a church. But, but here's where we're going in conclusion this morning. Many Christians never experience 
that kind of community or participate in that kind of community because the pain of repentance and the pain of God's truth is just too much for them want to go through. What I mean by the pain of repentance is they say, well, I want to find a place where people sin like me and those sins aren't called out so I don't have to repent. I'm looking for a church that I have to repent in least. And if your unity in a congregation is around finding a place that you need to repent least, your unity is not around Jesus, but it's around your comfort and not having to to face sin and repent. Or truth, and so Paul's going to go through and talk about human sexuality, he's going to talk about government, he's going to talk about politics, he's going to talk about marriage, he's going to say this is God's plan for marriage. One husband, one wife. Intimate with one another alone. Say, this is God's plan for finances. This is God's plan for your vocation. This is the truth of God's scripture. And I know the culture around you is going to call you crazy and a bigot and hypocritical and everything else if you say that. But that is God's truth. And so people look at, I don't want to repent. And I only want to say the truths that people aren't going to be upset with me about. And so I'm going to refuse to walk towards a redeemed community that is marked by redemption, repentance, forgiveness, and is marked by God's truth according to God's word. But this is the beauty of the Christian message. Jesus came to save you from your sins, but also to so unite you to himself that his gospel begins to change you. So that even though it's no fun to repent, you see sin as fundamentally robbing you of seeing how loving and glorious and beautiful Jesus is. And so you want to see your sin removed by whatever way possible so that you can see more of Jesus' love for you and walk more in his grace. And so if you can find a place where people love you enough to start to point out some of your stuff and say, hey... I think this is a blind spot for you. I think you've got sin going on in your life. You say, thank you. I want to love Jesus more. And I I see how that's keeping me from loving him more. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he has given me the freedom to say that is sin. And I I leave it and forsake it for the name of the Lord Jesus. Because I want to walk all of my life according to his ways. Because he has redeemed me. Only Jesus can empower you to do that. No self-helpism, none of those things. Only Jesus can make it possible for you to look at your sin and say, I choose to eat Jesus instead. Because Jesus is the only thing that's more powerful, more beautiful than the sins that you cultivate. And so when Jesus does that to a person, he creates a community of people that do the same thing. And that is a crazy community. Where people are constantly saying, I want to love Jesus more. And I see my sin is not something to kind of hide out of the way, not something to pretend it doesn't exist, but something that is trying to rob me of enjoying Christ. And I realize I have blind spots. I can't even see it, so I need other people to help me. And there are these people who are willing to help me love Jesus and repent of sins. And it's called a local church and Christian friendships. And that's amazing. But it only happens as people are united to Jesus and have their eyes fixed on him. If your eyes are fixed on Apollos, you won't do that. If your eyes are fixed on Paul or Peter, you won't do that. If your eyes are fixed on Matt or Mark or John, you won't do that. You'll just self-reinforce your own little Christian ghetto. And you'll insulate yourself from your own blind spots. But secondly... If God is a God of truth, and that's his truth, and there's nothing more beautiful than God and his truth and how he made the world to run, then I want to advocate and proclaim the truth of that God, and I want to say it to everyone else and model my life on it, because I want God's truth and the way that he made the world to work to be on full display, rather than the lies that seek to distort the beauty of how, created, how he created culture and family and government and the church to work and to run. You will only stand for God if God has already stood for you. 
You will only stand next to him and say, I am with you and I am for your agenda if he has said, I have redeemed you and I have made it possible for you to stand here as my beloved son or daughter by my own good work. You can stand here and be here because all of the lies in culture are like your mama jokes to our God. I mean, your mama joke is the one thing you don't say or at least said when you're growing up. Like that was, those were fighting words. You could joke and you say whatever else until somebody said something about your mom. And then that that was, all right, it's serious now. We're getting sideways. Well, everything's fun and games until someone goes against the truth of our God. That's the your mama joke. That's the, no, I I need to disagree with you because I am am on this God's side. I I love this God, and not just intellectually, but I'm going to take the way that he says things should go, and I'm going to try and work them out in my own life, in my own family, because I trust him, and nobody's done something like he's done for me and is doing in me. I am with this God. And so if, if, we are, if we're with Jesus, repentance, or the lack thereof, can't create division. If we're with Jesus, and we pour over God's word, then our, our little divisions can't happen either because we're around God's word. Now, it may happen around God's word. I mean, there might be a group that says, no, we're gonna decide that sin is okay. And that's where we say, no, we're not for you. And so that kind of disagreement in a congregation will happen. When heresy is fostered and a heresy grows within a congregation, certain sins are propagated, certain the- wrong theological views, we're going to have division then in a congregation. But it's going to be because we are united around Jesus, not because we're all going after our own little Christian celebrities and ghettos. And so that's where the Apostle Paul's going. And in a microcosm, you're going to see this played out for the whole rest of the book of Corinthians. Paul's going to say, this is a big issue. What's the matter with you? Do you see all the stuff that's happening in you? Jesus is the answer. Why don't you come to him? Why don't you rest in him? Why don't you worship him? Why don't you walk with him and experience the kind of growth and forgiveness that Jesus offers you and the kind of equipping and empowering that he's given you not just to change your life and your family and your church, but change the world. And this is where it comes for you as you consider this congregation and where we are. This isn't the JFK JFK speech, but it starts with you. It is not okay with me for your view of Christian unity is that that congregation should get its act together. It's not okay with me if you are on a Christian unity hunt and you are just trying to figure out somewhere out there is this mythical unicorn of Christian community. Where this is calling us is that you start with you. You say, what about me makes it difficult for me to be in community with others? And how can I repent of that? Where are my blind spots to God's word, the parts I'm uncomfortable with? And how can I put study into that and study what God teaches about that? Where are some friendships that I have that I am practicing this and I am telling my friend that I'm practicing Christian friendship and community with them because I realize I'm not so good at it? It's like the guys in college who are out looking for their like mythical dream wife. They're just on this hunt of, well, where is she? Where is she going to be? I, I had a friend, um, and he was offered the opportunity to go to Scotland for um, his junior year at Wake Forest. Um, and he and his buddy were going to go together, and they are part of the Christian um, community there. Um, but their big worry was, if we go to Scotland during our junior year, we are going to take ourselves out of the dating market, at the Christians amongst Wake Forest at that time, and maybe we won't meet our dream wife. What if she comes by, you know, the junior year, and she gets snatched up by one of our other um, friends who are home and not in Scotland? And so um, they happen to have one of their parents is a big donor to Robbie Zacharias's ministry, and um, they were at a, a donor thing, and they got to sit down with Robbie Zacharias. And like any college kid, you know, they sit down with Robbie Zacharias, one of the greatest apologists of our generation, um, and they decide what are we going to talk to him about, and they talk to him about dating. And so they, they, they lay out this question before him, and, um, and Rob, Robbie, um, so biblically and truly, says, you've got it all wrong. If you want to marry a queen, focus on making yourself into a king. And then the rest will sort itself out. Make yourself into the kind of person 
who would go well in a relationship with the kind of person that you want to marry. Make yourself into the kind of Christian that would function well in healthy Christian community. Rather than just saying, out there somewhere, there's this community out there, focus on you. And what you'll find is you start to build it around you. And things start to get better in your life in terms of your friendships, not because you've found the right friend, but because you started to work on your stuff. And the only way for you to do that is with Jesus. So my application for you, my, um, my um, homework for you this week is just three things to pray. That's easy. Everybody can pray, right? All of you can pray. Simply pray. And so the first thing I want you to pray is, Father, where am I refusing to repent of sin? God has placed his Holy Spirit in us. Um, we should all know where our areas of habitual sin are. And so it's important to pray and say, Father, where do I need to repent of sin? Second question, Father, what truths from your word do I need to affirm? You see, that most of us know the areas of the Bible that we don't agree with. We just tend to avoid them. You know the topics that you're uncomfortable with what God says. And because he's God, and because you're a Christian, you know he's right. You just avoid it. Those are areas to press into, and those are usually the most pressing areas in your life, and you'll see Corinth walk through that. So what areas of truth do you need to affirm or study about God? Is it human sexuality? Is it gender roles within your marriage? Is it Christian community, wherever it is? Where, where is God saying, yes, that is the area that I want you to study and to press in on? Thirdly, Father, what is my next step for building true Christian community around Jesus? I don't know what your next step is. Maybe it's joining a community group. Maybe it's fostering just a friendship. Maybe it's repenting. Maybe it's just praying long enough what my next step is and waiting for God to answer whatever that might look like. But all of us can do those three things, and we believe in a God that's in work with us, at work in us and that the trajectory of redemption is going to work restored relationships. And so we are standing with him and what he's up to in our congregation. Why don't I pray to that end to close us? Father, we thank you for your word both written that we've studied and incarnate word that it is all about. Father, help us as a church to always focus on Jesus. And we know that there will always be temptations and distractions. And so even now, Lord, we repent and long that we would be a congregation whose eyes all the time were fixed on Jesus, no matter what. As individuals who all the time were fixed on Jesus, no matter what. That isn't our experience. And so we both repent and we ask for help. Father, there is nothing better and more valuable than your son. And so we love him and we pray in his name. Amen. When we respond in song, let's stand. <laughs>